Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, it's Toby Miller here, and I'm with uh, my new friend Claire Virtual, whom I've just met, and who has just interrupted me, it's got the emphasis on the first syllable, not the second of the last name, is that right Claire? It's, it, either way is fine, yeah. not fussing. So, uh, we're sitting here in the salt tea and coffee lounge, where are we? We're sort of in theatre land, aren't we? We're in Drury Lane, we should go and see a show. <laughs> But instead, we're going to put on our <laughs> show right here, just like the Hardy family. And uh, that show really is about you, Claire. Great. So, no pressure. But, you know, you've got three quarters full of water there, you've got a cup of coffee coming so it should be all pretty nice and easy. Okay. Uh, now, you're in a new job, a new yeah. job, I think. Tell us about that. Well, I've just moved to uh, King's College London in the Institute of North American Studies. So it's a bit of a shift for me, because I've always just been in cultural studies and media studies. And I've moved, yeah, I've just moved just to do something different. I mean, it's for me, it's doing American cultural studies, but obviously there are people there doing all sorts of approaches to American studies, so there are historians and and you know, literary scholars. So it's I'm doing the culture bit, kind of thing. And then culture girl. <laughs> I'm the culture girl. But of course, that draws on all those other things. So it's um, it works quite well, and it's been really interesting. There's loads going on there, and you're in the middle of London. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the restorative tea. Thank you very much, thanks. You're right in the centre of London. Yeah, which is a real change. I mean, I was at Kent before in Canterbury, so it's been a real um, just you know shift of location and what those what that kind of Tory voters do. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it. It's really early days at the moment. I've only been there a month or so, um, and it's just MA teaching, which has been really interesting for me because I spent a lot of time with undergraduates, which I love. I love teaching undergraduates, but it's just a different focus. It's really interesting. Where do your students come from? Well, they're mainly UK-based, but there are a few Americans and then some European students. So, but mainly UK, yeah. Does North America include Canada and Mexico? Well, it would do, depending on your interpretation. I mean, lots of American studies programs obviously do. You know, it's the Americas. Um, so it would be... Yeah, North and South America. But actually what we're doing at the moment is just thinking about the United States. So there is, a, you know, in American studies there's a big question about, you know, what you call it. <laughs> and Especially North America. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we sort of have inherited that tide of, and we're constantly thinking about whether to expand, to think about, um, yeah. If you'd done it a few years ago, the Canadians would have given you lots of money. Uh, well, now, yeah. the Conservative government there doesn't want to give Johnny Foreign uh, money to study Canada. Yeah, yeah. They don't approve anymore. Is that right? They've literally can't. So I understand that all their support for Canadian studies overseas. So they've gotten rid of right. the attaches in embassies, and high commissioners, who's yeah. responsible for that kind of yeah. thing. Well, it's really interesting how politics influences that kind of spread of I mean, if you think about the origins of American studies, you know, very much sort of on the ascendance of American power and, and and just the way in which that knowledge then gets exported around the world and then other, you know, other locations are studying America and 
then we have to think about it as a transnational object of study. And so I think that's where we're coming from. We're sort of thinking that we can do something different from here than would be done from anywhere else necessarily. So, yeah, it's quite exciting. We're developing it. You know, it's, it's all up for grabs. It's only been running for a year. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's, it really is just at the nascent phase, in the nascent phase. Well, you know, the FT, Financial Times, the godhead of all knowledge, tells us that the BRICS era, Brazil, Russia, India, China is now in. Yeah. The new era is uh, Mexico, Korea, the fourth country in which escapes Yeah, okay. That's the next phase. <laughs> We're on the cusp. So, what kind of team do you have? I'm not asking to name all names. What sorts of backgrounds and interests do people have? Well, so the woman that I work really closely with is Uta Balbi, and she um, is interested in the relationship between religion and you know, the role of religion in American history. And she's really a historian, so a 20th century historian. Um, so that's her sort of thing. She also looks at sport. Um, the history of sport in America. Um, but then we draw on people who are doing things all over the university. So there are people from English, history, politics that we draw on their expertise. So, and Paul Gilroy is now there. So he's offering courses to our students, which apparently are going really, really well and really interesting. So, um, yeah. So there's some really interesting people doing some interesting things there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know much about the hierarchy or modus operandi of British universities really, but everyone says King's is a great school. It seems to be so far. I mean, it's really a new thing for me. It's a great place to be. It's just lots of events. So I'm not going to every at the moment. Yeah. And what about the search? What do you want to So, at the moment, I'm thinking about um, the role of transparency. So, transparency as a trope, but also as a something real that really is sort of being implemented by particularly the UK and US governments and is being exported around the world as a kind of, um, you know, as a modus operandi to aspire to in international transactions, but also in national, you know, locations. So um, I'm particularly looking at the idea of open government directives, um, particularly thinking about the way in which Obama in 2008 came in on the ticket of transparency. Um, you know, he really sort of campaigned on that note, particularly to make a distinction between him and Bush, the sort of the assumption that the Bush administration was sort of steeped in secrecy. Um, and that there is some empirical evidence to support that, for sure. And so, and so Obama's come in and he's put in place all sorts of different in, um, government directives. So there's the Open Government Directive, which sort of influence, which calls on government departments to be much more open about what they're doing, and so that can sometimes just mean putting data online, okay? <laughs> which has it, which is good, but it has its sort of limitations, obviously. And I guess what I'm just trying to do is upset the idea that transparency is this global good. Um, and sometimes it's hard to be against those sorts of things because, on the one hand, 
you know, it's like being against apple pie or kittens or something, and everybody just loves it. But I think it's important to interrogate what's really happening around those terms of transparency and what, what it's an avatar for, in a sense. Like, is it, is it in lieu of, you know, responsible government? Is it in lieu of responsible decision-making? So what's really going on there when government talks about wanting to be more transparent? I mean, transparency is just a means to an end. It's a means to trustworthy government or a more equal, fair society or something. And it seems to me like, you know, if we just talk about transparency, then that's not really doing the work um, that needs to happen to make those things happen. So that's, I sort of started off thinking about that because... <laughs> you can stop me if I'm going on. But because um, I used to write about conspiracy theory, and that was my first kind of interest. Um, and what I noticed was is there's lots of um, there are lots of policy studies thinking about the problems of conspiracy theories for governments. So there's Cass Sunstein in the States who wrote a very sort of famous paper before he went into the government. Um, problematizing conspiracy theory and its relationships to um, violence and you know, extremism and things like that. And there's also a Demos paper in the UK that says much the same thing. And so I was really interested because one of the one of the suggestions to combat that is transparency. You know, greater transparency will get rid of conspiracy theories. And I sort of was thinking about how oppositions like that take place and what what's really going on in those and whether that's a real opposition in the first place. Um, yeah, so that's how I got into transparency, but I'm not really thinking about necessarily just a relationship to conspiracy theory And what about the imperial presidency? Because given that that is the overweening push that we've seen under the Bush regime and the Obama regime, if anything intensifying under Obama, doesn't that negate the importance of transparency as an ethos and also negate it in its practicalities in that because the president has overarching power in foreign policy, that's really where it matters anyway? And also things like the state secret privilege, which allows, um, you know, um, which is an evidentiary rule, which allows the government to stop any evidence from being submitted or stops the court case from, the case from happening if it feels as if anything is sensitive to yeah. you know, security. Um, so with that kind of power, <laughs> it sort of makes transparency What's the point of it laughable. Yeah, yeah. But then you can say, I mean, you can't dismiss all you know, actions which are done in the name of transparency, like the Freedom of Information Act, like you know, trying to scale down classification. I mean, all these things are good. But then just sort of drips in the ocean. That's the problem, I think. And that transparency doesn't really get to the heart of what's problematic about that. Can I ask you also about styles of transparency? I'm thinking of the fact that you mentioned making material available online being quite important. Bits of the British government have quite fancy websites that are fairly impressive. The US government is basically stolidly boring in its presentation of these Yeah, well I think that's interesting because there's the data.gov um, site in America which started it and then 
and then Britain has the same thing. And they, Britain's really run with it, actually, and they are, you know, there's a lot more on the British side than there is on the American side. And the American side, its funding got cut massively quite recently. So it's really, um, it's really questionable about what's going to happen to that in the future. So that's probably why. But then there's lots of NGOs which are doing, like the Sunlight Foundation, places like that, which are sort of taking on that role themselves and doing quite, you know, and, and their interfaces are much more interesting and attractive. And there are lots of apps, you know, that are being developed to sort of make the data more, you know, attractive. attractive. But, this but I'm really sceptical about visualizations. I'm, I'm very, very sceptical. Well, that's my, my next question. The things that I might find appealing uh, may not appeal to lots of other people, um, especially if we're talking about ordinary folk looking for information about themselves yeah. that might be helpful to them. Yeah. Um, but also if we're talking about policy critics who are looking for data, who may be much more concerned with the directness of flow-through, as it were, rather than how pretty uh, or fancy the site is. I don't know. I don't know what constitutes transparency when we're talking about appeal to different kinds of persons. Well, I think the real question for me is, what, what transparency in this open government kind of guise does is it, it makes everybody else citizens into these kind of citizen auditors, right? So then it's our responsibility to monitor the data. And that's a problem, I think, because you're outsourcing then uh, regulation, right? It's our job. And if we don't spot the, the problem, then it's, it's now our problem, kind of thing. So it's that kind of classic development. So although, um, you know, it helps that there are these visualizations out there, in some ways, it, it, it just is sort of putting that responsibility on some what about outside the web? In the United States now, libraries have record numbers of users. They're more popular and more important than any other point in history. A lot of that is because they provide warmth and toilets to homeless people. Uh, some of it is because there are now very few jobs you can apply for in anything approaching the formal sector in the United States other than online, and vast numbers of people don't have homes, and vast numbers of people don't have easy access to online services. So what about transparency beyond the assumed universality of internet connectedness? Yeah. So you're saying, how does that help? Yeah. How do you have access? How does it help the real working class in the United States when the working class actually doesn't have access to these things? I mean, vast parts of it and the underclass. Yeah, I mean, that's the digital divide, isn't it? You know, that's the question of, of uh, yeah, the politics of, of access in a sense. So yeah, I think transparency has you know all sorts of layers of problems, access, um, theoretical problems, political problems. I mean one of the other things I'm trying to think about is um, its relationship to secrecy. Because in particularly in America, um, particularly around that election between Bush and Obama, you get the presentation of transparency on one hand and secrecy on the other, and that it, it's presented as this political choice. Um, and I'm, I want to question the idea of how opposed those trends really are. You know, so, anyway, so some of my work is quite theoretical in thinking about the close relationship rather than distant relationship. What about in universities here in the United Kingdom. 
people want to know why decisions are made about Does that just make for more paperwork and less thoughtfulness? I guess, well, that sort of feeds into the idea of the all, you know, audit cultures, doesn't it? And the transparency, I mean, one of my criticisms or sort of scepticisms about transparency is how, um, how close it is to neoliberal forms of audit culture that it can feed into that, that mindset of, well, as long as we are keeping account of everybody's whereabouts and what they're doing, so academics, you know, what are you doing every single minute of the day? How much time is that research? How much is it teaching? How much is that? I mean, you know, that kind of understanding might create less transparency and more layers of bureaucracy which are not transparent in themselves because their politics are not transparent. Right? So you can have transparency on one level, and of course it's it's only a sort of different kind of occlusion, a sort of political occlusion. Mm-hmm. So this interest in this country in surveillance of people at all moments is remarkable, it's extraordinary. Within moments of arriving here, you realise it's it's a society dedicated above all to surveillance and nice clothes and good forms of chocolate. But surveillance is above even chocolate, as far as I can see, at least in London. And chips, come on. Oh, okay, I guess that's true, the so-called national food. Well, I noticed during the Olympics, people kept saying that the curry is now... That's true. International food. So it's interesting in that context to ask oneself if one makes a critique of that surveillance of everyday professional life, whether in making that critique that I've just incarnated, one is actually supporting an extraordinary degree of autonomy for the part of the ruling class that runs or that is involved in universities that in fact isn't available to people in blue collar jobs or in the informal sector that's an important part of the economy. So so you're saying that actually that surveillance only in some ways applies to people who have already made themselves uh, accountable or surveillable by entering the middle class. Well, they decree, in, in a sense, although, of course, there's surveillance. No, I think there's lots of surveillance. Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean. What I mean it's is audit and then there's surveillance. People in this uh, middle class fraction yeah. are claiming uh, professional status and hence relative autonomy from the regulations that apply right, elsewhere. Right, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, of course, when doctors and dentists and architects and academics do that, the question is how legitimate that might be when large amounts of their money and their accreditation derive from the public wheel. Yeah. So, and the other people don't get that option to exempt themselves from the surveyable insights. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I have a confession to make. Can I do this? Yes, this is definitely a safe space for very public confession. It's a confession and an apology in some ways. I think I... Apologise to the public, some of whom are not even... Yes. I, I think I used you and Alec McCool in a book of mine as straw men. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I was talking uh, in the book. I was writing about gossip and speculation, and um, and really the place of theory in cultural studies. And so I was looking at your book, Popular Culture in Everyday Life. And, um, I thought I should come clean before we go. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> Look, you've made an old man happy because 
the gentleman who just left was banging fiercely on the table, which was really, apart from being irritating <laughs> and nacho, and especially old when he doesn't seem angry with the man he's talking to, was fucking up the sound levels hugely. So I'm now able to, I've just put down the microphone again on the table, so you could have said almost, I think you timed a so-called apology very, very well. You've got nothing to apologise for, there are straw people everywhere. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Alec uh, has recovered from the sling and the arrow. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure I will too. Not to worry, um, these things are, are there to provide opportunities Debate. to discuss things. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, it's fine. Because in a way that's the other strand of my work, which is yes. ongoing, which is this um, the sort of theory, the use of theory and cultural studies. Yes. And what it's sort of, I mean, I did a book with Gary Hall about, um, it's called New, uh, New Adventures in Cultural Studies. Um, and so... New Adventures in Cultural Studies with you and Gary Hall. It's called, no, it's called New Cultural Studies, Adventures in Theory. Yeah. New Cultural so Studies, Adventures in Theory. Yeah. Anyway, so... In that book, we were really looking at sort of new directions of, of you know, theoretical directions that, culture, yes. that could be of use to cultural studies mm -hmm. in some way. And now, in a way, I think what's, what's happened with that strand of my work has moved into this kind of sense of uh, cultural studies and its theoretical speculative possibilities being embodied through performative spaces like, um, so we've got lots of digital projects that we're involved with. Um, so I'm doing, I've just done this thing called Living Books um, About Life. Living Books About Life? Yeah, which is an online project, um, a digital online project that was funded by JISC, which is you know, UK based um, funding. JISC. JISC. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what it said. <laughs> and so this is with Gary Hall and Joanna Zelinska, and we have created these sort of 21 books online. They're online books, and they're trying to take themes about life and look at them from a scientific, well, sort of join a scientific and humanities approach to particular questions. So my book's on invisibility, for example. So I'm looking at... Biography of Claude Rains. Sorry? Biography of Claude Rains. <laughs> and um, I'm looking at black holes and invisibility cloaking. So real you know, scientific engagements with... So not Ralph Ellison. No. <laughs> Although I do mention him in the introduction. So I'm, I'm talking... I mean, in the introduction, the introductions are really good because they are written by people in culture, media, you know, uh, communication studies. And what we're trying to do in those is really link the scientific papers that we link to in those books to humanities questions and cultural studies questions. Um, but the idea of those books is to think about open access, and um, but not just open access, but open editing. So the books are all able to be edited by anybody. So it's about a collaborative approach to creating books. Just looking for new publishing 
And how is that going in terms of participation by readers? I don't think we've had one person change anything yet. It shows how good the books are. The books are great, and in a way I think that might be the problem, that you come to them and they look already made. You know, they're, they're polished in some ways. They look good. And I think sometimes... Uh, people just feel unsure of how to intervene. And, uh, but we are really trying to think of ways of making people Opening feel that invited. Well, you know those books you buy that are predicated on the understanding that there will be book groups and have sets of questions for book groups yeah. at the end. Yeah. That may sound very old folkish, yeah. but it's a remarkably successful phenomenon in publishing. Yeah. And it's not just like exercises for students, it's, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of these groups around the world, they're really thriving. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a nice idea to include something as boring as that? Yeah, I mean, but in a way that's the classic sort of discussion forum area on the site. No, no, but say, you know, come in and change you know, this question relates to the following pages. Yeah, yeah. Please go and say what you think or correct yeah. it or something. I guess we didn't want to direct people too much, but you're right, maybe it needs to be more suggestive. Well, if, if, I guess what I'm saying is if the books look physically, artistically, intellectually fully achieved, one way to underachieve is to erode that authority by using your authority against itself. In other words, yes, do direct them. Yeah. to various spots because you've yeah. already written the best you can instead of not the best you can. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what do yeah. I know? Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it might really be fun. Yeah. If you want to get Stephanie Plum reading groups going, then <laughs> that's what you might need to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we are creating, but it is interesting, we've got, it does feel like it's creating a sort of community of people who are interested, particularly in open access and, and new media, questions around new media and new media theory. Like uh, where are the books available? They're online. Yeah. They're at, if you just Google living books about life, yeah. you'll find them. Living books about life. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I've got some great people doing books like Claire Colbrook. Um, we've got... Um, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but yeah, there's lots of really good books. Wonderful. And do you release bits of the books in advance to get comments from the public? No, the books are done so that but the, it, a book that makes it sound it's actually not a very good description of what's, what it is in a sense because there's an introduction and then there's links to different open access science scientific papers because yes. science is much more advanced than us um, the science is much more advanced than the humanities in making their material available open access they put it in repositories before it gets published and it's all about sort of, um, you know, using that research in a timely manner whereas in the humanities as you know it can take years for your work to get out there um, and okay it might not be as urgent but you know there is a sense of in cultural studies particularly where, where we're trying to engage in the contemporary conjuncture you know there is a sense that availability is important and timeliness is important so um, yeah so these, these links link to books in those repositories um but people have also put in links to um, things like artistic websites and things like that. So we're trying to mix it up. And there's lots of clips, uh, video clips and things like that, to help people 
with the science <laughs> because um, yeah, it's a nice way of doing it. So I've got, so for example, I've got a you know, YouTube clip on black holes. And, um, yeah. Where we can see you talk about them. No, no, no. Where we can see black holes. <laughs> where you, yeah, where you get some. They are Scientific understanding. They are visualised. Oh yeah. 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 Or dark matter. Okay. And do you have scientific readers to collaborate with you? We don't. And it's, I'd be really interested to know what someone from the, you know, from the scientists thought of them. Because obviously, I mean, lots of people were asking and doing uh, hybrid, hybrid discipline. You know, they're interdisciplinary, so they are doing science studies. So it could be. Um, so, you know, it's not just. I think that divide between scientists and humanities is. A false one, in, you know, in lots of ways these days, anyway. But it would be quite interesting to know what sort of very straight scientists think of what we're doing. I'm sure they hate it. <laughs> no, I don't know. But possibly not. Yeah. <laughs> you said that you thought the division between the sciences and the humanities was something of a false one. Well, only that these days you do have people doing, people like Karen Barrett, who are doing science studies. Philosophical perspective. So I think there are people doing really interesting work in that field. Um, I'm not an expert on it at all, so. Well, <laughs> you're helping to run the series, so. Yeah, no, I mean, on, on the science studies, but I think there are interesting And you mentioned that the series is informed by theory. Um, what does well, this imply? I think more in the sense that trying to find performative ways to enact an openness about what cultural studies could be. So one of the things that Gary and I, Gary Hall and I, were thinking about in our book, um, New Cultural Studies, was the was the need for cultural studies to be open to becoming something very unlike cultural studies, so that we can't take for, we can't take for granted its politics. We can't take, or what the political is, at least, and we can't take for granted um, what kinds of theories are useful. So, the idea of hegemony, for example, may not be the most useful model now. It may be, but it might not be. And I think for taking it for granted that it is, with limits of all sorts of other ways of thinking about that. And so I suppose the online, the digital projects, because there are other ones as well, we're doing um, Liquid Theory TVs, which is TV episodes. Um, we did one on Deleuze and the Control Societies. Anyway, so we're trying to find different sorts of digital performative ways of enacting, not necessarily new cultural studies, but enacting the possibility of cultural studies being different to what it has been. What it's been in the past. Yeah. Can you tell us about these other digital projects? Liquid TV, you said? Yeah, so it's called Liquid Theory TV. Sorry, Liquid Theory TV. Yes, and that's with Peter Wood Woodbridge and Gary Hall as well. Yeah. And so there's the three of us. One of us will write the script. <laughs> One of us will do the um, visuals, um, and the other might, you know, help with both of those. So we've been doing different. So we did do one on transparency and secrecy, which is obviously my research area. So that was published in Control Z, which is or Control Z, um, which is coming out of Curtin University. Um, and the other one is just on YouTube, and we published it in Culture. 
and that's on Deleuze and Control Society. And people can find this by Googling or whatever in Liquid Theory TV. I guess it's L I Q U I T H E O R Y. So this is a bit like what I think Julia Lassage calls handmade media. In the sense of you're sharing these different roles, you're not seeking to do these in a conventionally professional manner. Well, Gary Hall has this term quite useful, um, media gifts, he calls them media gifts. Um, yeah, I find that quite useful as a way of thinking about putting things out there. You don't, I guess you can't control who's going to find those or who's going to find them interesting or useful or helpful. Anyway. So it's a different kind of way of being a public intellectual. <laughs> I'm not very good at the public intellectual thing. I don't really like talking about what is, pub- what is a public intellectual? You are a public intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say who is. No, I mean, what is one? I've, I've always, I mean, without wishing to sound as I'm making this up, I genuinely get very confused by this term. I was part of a team evaluating a PhD that is meant to generate public intellectuals. They've been doing this for 15 years. They weren't able to tell us what one was. I went in there not knowing. I came out not knowing. What's the name of the program? MA in Public Intellectual? No, it's PhD in Public Intellectual. It's in Florida. So, I don't quite get it. I find it very difficult when journalists say, call you up and ask you about... Your opinion on it. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely confused about what they're asking you to do. Because on the one hand, I'm thinking, are you just asking me to tell you about all the research that's out there on this? Are you asking for my opinion? In which case, why don't you just ask the person next to you? Right? I mean, why, why is my opinion any more valid or less valid than this? Um, yeah, I don't know. I find it. I find it very odd. Yeah. I don't think it's clear at all. But having said that, so you're more comfortable recording in a somewhat informal way your thoughts on Deleuze and the Control Society than a journalist giving you a bell and saying, help us, we understand this, or we need someone to say X and Y who's not from the BBC or The Guardian, will you please say this? Well, I sort of think, go and read my book. That's what I want to say to them, because they don't have time to do that. In which case, why are we writing those books thinking, and why are we talking about outreach, and why are we talking about impact, if actually nobody can read those books? You know, and then we have to go and interpret them on the phone anyway to journalists. It just seems like a really you know, difficult game to play. Well, it gets back, doesn't it, to some of that earlier discussion um, that we had about the nature of a profession and the capacity of a profession to decree that it will or will not be subject to scrutiny uh, with the notion that it has its own regimes of value, i.e. the book matters if you're in the humanities or the soft social sciences, but at the same time it's meant then to be able to provide boutique services to the public that show that this material can be popularised and made valuable in that sense, 
hence the role of the social commentator, cultural critic, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess that's the alibi, anyway, for these dual forms of performance or appearance. So when this... Maybe you can help me out, too, with understanding this word impact in the UK. What in universities? There are many papers written about it. I mean, there, there are reams and reams of... I've, I've read... I know what a journal impact score is, yeah. but... No, I don't think that's what... When in that's the not it. Well, I don't think so, do you? I mean, in the rest. This is the research excellence framework, which is the form of surveillance by the state of public universities to establish whether or not they should get some element of fundamental funding towards research as opposed to funding granted based on competition for particular projects. Yes? And it ranks universities and so on. So it's very important. Yes. It may be a joke, but it's not a joke. It's a joke, but it's a joke that determines jobs. Yeah. It may be conjunctural and contingent and conditional, but you must treat it with the utmost seriousness. As if it were wholly ripped. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Impact, I think. Well, I was working in a school of social policy, sociology, and social research before and and this was very it was a lot clearer there yes what you could say because there were people who were influencing policy and I think it's influence I think that's what they're looking for and how can your research be used and I mean usefulness is a very difficult term to unpack I know how to do it if you can promote the next Liqui Theory TV YouTube a few weeks in advance you can beat Eric Baumgartner's new record for number of simultaneous viewings that he set yesterday when he went the speed of sound. It's all in promotion. We've got lots of hits, but I don't think that counts. That, oh, hits don't count. I don't think that that's what they're looking for. It's not even really about... Um, because just publishing, that's just the same as publishing. Right? How many books did you sell last year? Well, I don't think they're really that interested in that either. It's about then, the application of those ideas. And of course, that, that can take decades, right? As we know, you know, some of our theories we're using and picking if, up now. If there's a woman sitting in the corner of a coffee shop, or taking 20 minutes while her child is asleep and watches your YouTube video and enjoys it and gets something from it, that might be more valuable than a bunch of people sitting around in an office debating it in terms of some ludicrous policy intervention by technocrats. Why is one necessarily more valuable than the other? I don't see it, actually. So I think it's a minefield. I mean, I think you can argue against that. Is there any legitimacy, do you think, in this sort of measurement context for the kind of work that you do? Or do you reject it other than at a pragmatic level? Yes. I reject it other than I Obviously, I have to, I'm the same as everyone else. I have to publish, you know, I have to do the, those sorts of things. Not all of my work is open access as I would like it to be. Um, I try to self-archive so that it is actually effectively open access. Um, so one of the um, one of the projects I'm involved with 
is the Open Humanities Press, which comes out of Michigan at the moment. And it's um, a totally open access, online, digital publishing project. And we've got some wonderful books. And we, I sort of edit a series on that. And so I, you know, I'm always encouraging people to publish open access, publish digital. But of course, you know, everybody has to weigh up their own, you know, yeah. institutional situation and I think that's a choice that everybody has to make. Um, but obviously if, if we all do it, everyone else will do it. It'll be okay for other people to do it. And it'll be it'll be okay for junior academics to do it as well. So I think I think that is important to sort of encourage people of my age and older to start to publish. Yes. Many years ago I went to a symposium with other journal editors, including the, the top science and medical journals around. And their problem was that they and people of their level in the hierarchy were quite happy to publish online, but junior people were not, uh, because it was just too threatening for their careers. And this was one question. Another question was the robustness of archives, physical and otherwise, for being able to retain all the evidence and calculations that they did, um, and the ways that they wished to illustrate them. So that those calculations, that evidence, could be made available to others. These were the principal things, but the, probably the biggest one was this question of junior people being frightened with some reason of not having their work deemed legitimate uh, if it didn't appear in this form. Senior people just gaily went ahead publishing wherever they wanted to, whatever form they liked. You see, I think this question of Legitimacy is really central because, um, I mean, just to sort of change the subject slightly, but one of the things that I was looking at when I was writing about conspiracy theories was the sort of legitimacy of knowledge and trying to think about the politics of knowledge and thinking about how how we in cultural studies sort of have a duty to face that question of legitimacy head on because we've always been marginalised, we've always been the kind of the bastard child of the humanities and some senses or social sciences or wherever they come from. And I think that that question of legitimacy is really central to everything that we do, particularly with you know, in, the, in that context of knowledge. So the, the idea that open access really feeds into that politics. I think that cultural studies is really well placed to say, well, as part of what we want to do and part of the ethos that we have, um, open access is part of that. But I, I understand pragmatic, I mean one of the things you think about there is sort of the pragmatic restrictions on open access and I understand things like um, a friend of mine, uh, Jeremy Gilbert, he edits New Formations and that's part of Lawrence and Wishart and Lawrence and Wishart, they get their money from New Formations and that enables that left, very small left-wing publisher to continue as it is. So there are, there is a kind of, a, you know, an economics involved on the ground and so I, you know, I don't think that you can just advocate open access sort of romantically.
semantically and just think that that's going to solve all the problems in the same way that transparency isn't going to solve all the problems. I think every single instance has to be addressed on its own terms and in, you know, under its own conditions. So I wouldn't say it's just a blanket kind of endorsement of the open access, but I do think it's one of those things that culture studies has to address. Because, we, because that's what we do. You know? Well, the, the models of open access that succeed either have state subvention, foundation, not-for-profit, third sector subvention, or authorial subvention. Other than that, it doesn't work. No one's found a fourth way. Perhaps if Bishop Blair of the Roman Catholic Church decides having fixed problems in the so-called Middle East to turn his hand to this, he'll be able to come up with a fourth way to add to his brilliant third way. But those are the models, and another one is, I guess, this market model, but it's a market model with a politics that is different from the corporate model of the publishers that determine how journals work, namely um, Elsevier uh, and its kind, you know, the big science and medical journal publishers who basically colour this field and decide, along with intellectual property hegemons, what it will resemble. Well, I really like Ted Strickler's work on this. He, he writes a lot about the political economy of, of um, different publishers. And so he writes about Ingenta, I think it's called, that run... Um, <laughs> that run um, cultural studies. Right, so they run... Um, yeah, I've forgotten what's in there. But Ted, Ted writes a lot about the political economy different publishers and, and how cultural studies, people who work in cultural studies have to be aware of what subsidiaries, publishing, you know, publishing, large publishing companies have elsewhere because, because we don't know who we're getting into bed with in a sense, you know, when we publish in this or that journal. So. Sure. In terms of the future of these things, what, I mean, if somebody says to you six, seven, ten times a year or a decade, will you contribute to this special issue of a journal? Will you write for this book? I wish. But I mean, let's just imagine that that is happening now or is going to happen. As I said, it might be a time, X times a year, it might be X times a decade. Are you going to make as a condition of that a special contract with the publishing house? I think that you can demand that. I mean, you, you may not get it. I mean, it depends who you are, I think, to the level of doing that. And if, but if they don't, I think then you just have to self-archive. I mean, no one is um, but I think increasingly people are asking for those kinds of clauses. Provisions. And the same, I guess, with things like what to do about open access, because one of the issues with open access under most of the contractual norms that are underpinning it is that it does allow for commercial benefit down the line. 
And that means you get people drawing artificial property lines around objects that were meant to be public property. So you and I might decide, wow, nice open source article, why don't we pretend that we own it? and sell it in the same way that everyone can do, you and I could do, uh, with a book by Mark Twain uh, or by William Shakespeare. Nobody holds the copyright, so we'll publish that and we'll charge people for it and we won't tell them before they buy, actually you could have gotten this for free. Sure. But in a way, that's a, a necessary possibility <laughs> of putting your work out there, that you don't know the ways in which it's going to be used or abused, but that, that, that's a condition of putting things out there, and that, that can be the same as just speech. Um, I mean, I don't know how you're going to use this podcast. You could, <laughs> you could edit it in such a way as to make my politics completely different, but that, that's a necessary condition of Oh, yes, I, I don't edit the podcast. No, no, I'm joking. But a question would be, in that case, uh, what about... And the instance I just gave you is one I have been the object of. I've also been the object of one where my work was comprehensively visually edited to become a pay-in to hardcore porn, uh, not endorsed by me. What do you do if uh, that syntagmatic arrangement is completely changed? Yeah, I mean, I it's the same as identity theft, isn't it? Isn't it? But isn't that a kind of postmodern condition? I mean, I don't. I mean, in a way, you know, these um, the living books about life. The the idea of them being open edited. You know, the possibilities of people coming in and just destroy. I mean, lots of the authors were sort of saying, well. How do we know that they won't be destroyed? Okay, so we have done things like we've kept an archive. So we've we've kept we've we've fro we've got frozen versions in time, so we can always revert back to those if necessary. But it, but part of us was reluctant to do that because that does take away the sort of. Um, just the experimental... We know the Los Angeles Times tried this. You know, they made their op-ed pages completely open. And people just filled them with four-letter words, misogyny and racism, and very little else. So very quickly, that experiment went down the drain. Because the Los Angeles Times was thereby hosting a set of words, values, positions, politics, that it avowedly did not hold. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, with your situation, I'd say write a paper about the many different ways in which your work has been appropriated. I think that's really interesting. Oh, sure, that's what I do. <laughs> right, okay, sorry. No. Yeah, I think... But it, the, uh, the question is where the venues go, how they circulate, and what you make of that. Because on the one hand, you have a position, say that, of Umberto Eco most famously, well, I write these words, then they cease to be my property. Or you have a position more famously, like Woody Allen. Woody Allen's, which is, I want control over all forms of promotion of my work everywhere around the world. And then relatedly, you have people like him and Vim Vendors and Martin Scorsese 
saying that the ex post facto colorization of black and white films is an artistic violation. And all sorts of interesting forms of authorship come to light. You know, and similarly, I know people who write for newspapers. I do myself. I write a newspaper column for free. And some of the money, and some of these people are not people with salaries. And they make money because the newspapers or magazines, and in some cases the universities, go after subsidiary sold rights digitally very vigorously. Now, this is not a matter of survival for me, but it is a matter of survival for some people. Yeah, I think academics are in a different position. Yeah. You know, we get paid to put our things out there, put our stuff out there, and I think it's very different if it's your labour. I mean, that's if your labour is paid differently. Yeah, then, then it becomes a very political question. And that's what I meant about the Lawrence and Wishart example, really. Of a sort of artisanal publishing project that's not dedicated to capital accumulation but to surviving as a business putting forward progressive ideas yeah. Yeah. and those spaces have to be made as well you know I was talking to Justin Lewis last night, who's in Cardiff in Wales, and they've just started a centre for community journalism, which is an attempt, given the havoc wrought on community local media in this country, to find a way whereby one might model how journalism could survive as a salaried and unsalaried blend. Because, of course, that havoc is also now being wrought at the national level also, with journalist jobs just disappearing, it seems, week by week. Um, and trying to find a way whereby you can have citizen journalism thriving, but also people can survive through their work rather than giving their work away for others to benefit from. Yeah, it's a difficult It is difficult, isn't it? Yeah. And also, you know, that sort of feeds back into my work around transparency, the sort of the devolvement of responsibility. So if you devolve responsibility to to record events or comment on, you know, local affairs, then um, it's just it's just a difficult question to unpack about what's really happening there and what are you then supposed to do with that responsibility? You know, yeah. What about in terms of artists and musicians as models for academics and journalists? But they don't get paid whether they perform or not, <laughs> whereas some academics do. Yeah, this is the Baumol cost disease applied to performance. Yeah. You know, and of course academia is increasingly becoming casualised, part-time, precarious yeah, and so on, isn't it? Yeah, very privileged yeah. layer of tenured yeah. staff. Yeah. So. Different world. It is. Well, we've got about five minutes left, Claire, and I wanted to go back to what you said about theorisation and tell us what you see as being some interesting, exciting, dynamic forms of theorization for the future. Now, what you'd like to see 
if not discarded, then built upon or potentially forgotten about, who knows? Uh, well, I think it's, there's, there's a risk in that, actually, answering that question, because then you would be prescribing, in a sense. Like, then you'd be saying, okay, we used to be interested in um, you know, this set of thinkers, and now we're interested in this set. And it's just a question of fashion then. You're just replacing old theory with new theory. And it, obviously there are, you know, there are things that are exciting and happening now. And, um, you know, there are people very excited about Badur and Agamben and, you know, Simmons and I don't know who else. But, you know, I'm... I'm sort of reluctant to do that actually because yeah. those things are exciting but only if they're used in really interesting and exciting ways I mean you can do theory in really terrible constricting you know ways which don't enlighten us in any, in any way about the questions that really are important now one of the things I really like about um, Stuart Hall once said that each new conjuncture requires not um, new answers to old questions but new questions and so I think it's more, rather than thinking about which theorists are really hot and who's really, what's really interesting, I think it's about asking really good questions that, that are about now. And that's what I'm always trying to do. And I, I don't think I've got it yet. But one of my questions, I suppose, and I can only do one, I can't do one. But one of the questions is this question about... Um, so, so in this... In this in this current conjuncture where we're thinking about when I'm thinking about transparency and secrecy is there something that the left has forgotten in secrecy right? we're being encouraged to align ourselves with transparency but by jumping on that sort of liberal bandwagon is the left then losing something by not thinking through secrecy okay, so that's, that's my big question but I'm not saying that's the only interesting question, that's my question <laughs> and that's all I can really say no, no thanks, that's very helpful since you talked a bit more about transparency than secrecy before, yeah. even though secrecy has been yeah. important in your work over a long period, maybe we could conclude with you just saying a bit more about that question of the left not thinking through secrecy sufficiently. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it comes out... Um, I was writing about it in a paper for uh, Theory, Culture and Society and I was, I was just asking that particular question and one of the things that I look to is WikiLeaks, okay? And what I say is radical about WikiLeaks is not that it can be seen as this sort of um, um, classical liberal notion of, of transparency, of embracing that, not that, but that actually what's really interesting about it was that it had to employ a level of secrecy equal to state secrecy in order to do what it wants to do. So although lots of the people on the left were you know, sort of praising it for its commitment to getting information out there, I was thinking, yeah, okay, no, obviously that's important and that's interesting. But you know, there's this level of secrecy which is very difficult to match. You know, state, the state has a real monopoly over secrecy at the moment. And I think that we have to wrest secrecy from the state if we're going to make it anything other than just a purely ideological tool. So this is the irony of WikiLeaks that it was logocentrically dependent on its damned other, 
in order to function. Just as uh, Julian Assange attacks notions of journalism and expertise while saying he should be trusted because he's a journalist with expertise. He wants to fight against white male imperialism in order to defend himself from rape charges. <laughs> It's at least logocentrically interdependent, is it not? Well, thank you very much, Claire. I hope that you will come back to the pod and talk to us some more as your various projects like just then. Started again. Anyway, that was lots of fun. <laughs> what I always worry about when I've done a podcast with someone says, and then I'm like, what if it's all gone? We'll find out soon. Be there or be square.